And we're going to do a contemplation now. Now, contemplation differs from meditation in a very important way, so I like to explain that to you. And contemplation has to be part of the practice also. In the meditation, we're trying to have a serene mind, tranquil mind. Stop thinking, experiencing one's inner purity, experiencing that which is within and has no outer connection. That's what we're trying to do at this point in time. In contemplation, we try to gain insight. So we are using both pathways, the pathway of serenity or tranquility and the pathway of wisdom insight. Naturally, we use the pathway of wisdom insight also in the meditation when we label our thoughts and realize what it is that we're thinking, when we realize what our habits are in thinking and how our mind is not standing still and allowing us to become peaceful. That too is insight. But contemplation is geared only towards insight and therefore it has to be part of one's practice. There are many ways we can contemplate and I will tell you some of them because obviously in the space of a week one cannot discuss 17,500 discourses that the Buddha gave. But I will tell you about those things which I consider essential so that you have a handle on practice. Contemplation, therefore, has a thought process connected to it. But it's not the same kind of thinking that we're used to in daily living and not the same kind of thinking which arises instead of meditation. The kind of thinking that arises instead of meditation is discursive. That what we do in daily living is also discursive most of the time. Sometimes it's trying to be logical. It can also, at other times, can be abstract. Like things that we cannot touch or see, we can still think about them. None of that applies to contemplation. The thought process which arises in contemplation is an inner seeing and an inner knowing, but it translates into a thought process. So what we're going to do is we're going to use a sentence <coughs> as a subject. It's a subject of our contemplation. And that sentence concerns a universal truth, which is also an individual truth. Now, contemplation is not problem-solving. Problem-solving is individual and egotistical. Contemplation is universal and translated into individual. So whatever is true for the whole of the universe is obviously true for each one of us. And only when we can see ourselves as part of the whole will we realize that the small and very personal problems that we are concerned with are part and parcel of the universality of rising and falling, impermanence, dukkha, 
not satisfactoriness, and just part and parcel of what there is. So when we try to do contemplation, it has to be something which is true wherever we look, but particularly also related to our own being. So we go from the universal to the individual and again from the individual to the universal so that we always have that connection. If we remain in that connection, if we keep that connection going in everyday life from the personal to the universal, we will see things in a totally different light. It won't be different in a way that it no longer exists, but it will be so different in the way that it touches us. And therefore, contemplation needs to be part and parcel of everyday life. And the Buddha called the ones that were going to do the five daily recollections, daily, every day, and for everyone. And they are universal truths which we would like not to be true. We are very much concerned with having things not the way that the law of nature has decreed. And we can see that everywhere in our environment. We don't want it that way. That we can't do it without hurting ourselves, we are slowly and gently waking up to. Whatever we've got in our minds, that happens out there. We are also the environment because what comes from us goes around. So what we don't like out there in the law of nature, the same thing we don't like within us in the law of nature. So we try to either forget about these things, these five that the Buddha um, recommended as daily recollections, either forget them completely, pretend they don't exist, or pretend against all logic and against all better knowing that we personally are exempt. And then when we wake up to the fact that we're not, because something happens and we wake up we're not, we think it's a tragedy. And in fact it's nothing at all as a tragedy. It's just the law of nature. And if we would, as the Buddha has recommended, take these laws of nature as our thinking uh, process and incorporate them into our natural understanding just as we naturally understand that the sun is warm and the snow is cold. Everybody knows that. We don't have to think about it. It's the law of nature. Well, the same thing with those five that we're going to contemplate on. They just are. And we don't have any great um, dislike of the coldness of the snow or the heat of the sun. It's just the way it is, isn't it? There's nothing one can do about it. Well, it's exactly that what we're going to do now. It's just the way it is. But if we look at it that way, it's just the way it is, and then say, well, then I don't even have to concern myself with it. Again, we'll be touched by it as a tragedy. When death comes, we think it's a tragedy. We don't realize that it's a law of nature. And all the others that we're going to talk about. So we have to concern ourselves with them and recognize them as part and parcel for our own being. They also help us to know ourselves as a very temporary being. And the more we can see ourselves as a temporary being that's going to be here now and gone tomorrow, 
whenever that tomorrow happens, the easier life becomes, the less we have to hang on. So this, all these things help us when we use the contemplation in the way of acceptance and realization. I'm going to say the sentence and ask you to repeat it after me, which will help you to remember it. And then I will say something about it to help you with the contemplation. If you know something better, please use it. These are only suggestions. They are triggers to put the mind in a different direction from where it's usually going. It's usually going along the tracks that the whole world is using. But they're not going anywhere. The world's round. So those tracks don't lead anywhere. But these other tracks that we're using, which are the Buddha's suggestions, they can lead us to complete freedom. So in order to start, please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Now please repeat after me. I'm of the nature to decay. I have not got beyond decay. I am of the nature to decay. I have not got beyond decay. Now the first thing to contemplate is whether this is a true statement, whether you can actually incorporate that into your daily thinking. And then when you have agreed to it that it is a true statement, have you noticed the decay? And if you can agree to that also, then investigate how do I feel about this decay. I'm of the nature to be diseased. I have not got beyond disease. I am of the nature to be diseased. I have not got beyond disease. 
Now, this does not necessarily only mean the sickness of the body. Dis-ease means also unease. Again, investigate. Is it a true statement? Is there unease in body and or mind? Doesn't have to be a great sickness. Anything. A knee pain, a cough, a sneeze, a headache, a toothache, feeling uncomfortable emotionally, anything goes under the heading of dis-ease. Is this a true statement? Do we have that? And do we like it? And if the answer is no, I don't like it, I'd rather not have it. Can we see the connection between the fact that we get something we don't like and the fact that it doesn't belong to us? If it were mine, why can't I change it at will? I'm of the nature to die. I have not got beyond death. I'm of the nature to die. I have not got beyond death. Obviously, we don't need to investigate whether this is a true statement. We all know that. And luckily, 
we have started talking about it in the past decade. But what we need to investigate and contemplate very determinedly is the fact whether we're ready for it or whether we think it's way off in the future and we don't want to be bothered with it now. Are we ready now? And if not, why not? What is keeping us back from that readiness? What is holding us in fetters, attached? And we can see, possibly, that that what holds us back, holds us back from the freedom of being able to be here now and not here tomorrow, if necessary. All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. Here we need to investigate whether this is a true statement. 
whether that which we have held dear in the past and found delightful, whether that has changed or whether it has vanished, such as people, experiences, situations, feelings, belongings, beautiful sights, sounds, anything we found delightful or held dear, is it still there in the same way or changed or completely gone? And if we find that it has either changed or is completely gone, then we need to investigate those things which we're holding dear and find delightful now. Will we think that it's a tragedy when we lose them, or do we know that everything in the universe is constantly in flux? I am the owner of my karma. I am the owner of my karma. Now this has to be reflected upon in the way that am I taking full responsibility for everything that's happening to me day in and day out or do I still look at the outer triggers and imagine that they're at fault or am I dependent upon them? Or am I taking personal responsibility for all that that is in my life? Being the owner of the karma and its resultants.
I am heir to my karma. Which means that if we would like to have a valuable inheritance, we have to manufacture it ourselves. Are we aware of that? The investigation needs to go towards the fact, am I really aware of that all I think, say and do has resultants which I then have to live through. I am born of my karma. This is an, an important aspect of karmic resultance. We are born in the situation and with the parents that we ourselves have chosen. It's all our own inheritance. That is a point needs to be recognized, realized, and then become part of one's own inner understanding. I live supported by my karma. Our good karma is our support system and the bad karma we have made is the destructive part. We don't need to look outside of ourselves. We don't need to look at the triggers and at the tools. It's all happening due to our own inheritance.
Whatever karma I shall do, that I will inherit. That brings us to the present moment, because in every waking moment, thought, speech, and action makes karma. So in the present moment, if we keep our understanding of the karma and its resultants alive within us, we will become more careful, because we have to live with the inheritance. Last night I told you about seven different prerequisites for meditation. I'll repeat them now to bring them back to your memory. And then I will talk about some more of them, all those things which are necessary so that we can meditate. <coughs> if you remember, the first two are provided for you, the physical base, the quiet place, and the food, the weather, also being provided, good weather. And, of course, you have to provide the posture. And then the association with equally um, <coughs> interested meditators, people who are on the same path as you, which is also important. And the other steps we have to all do ourselves gladdening the mind before we start meditating. I have mentioned it several times now. Removing the inactivity, the slothful nature of the mind. Not being negligent, being really attentive. Then the intention, the intentness on practice, being reverent and joyful that this is possible and having the practice of the meditative path as one's primary object in mind and then restraining and regulating the mind through the meditation subject and the labeling. Now these were the seven steps I mentioned last night. There are some more. One of the things which is important to know is also the balancing act. The Buddha's path is called quite often the middle path or the middle way. It's neither extreme on one side or the other. 
quite often we refer to the fact that it's neither indulgent nor ascetic. It's in the middle. But it's also neither lax in meditation nor tense in effort. It's almost like walking on a tightrope where you have to keep balanced all the time. They don't fall over on one side or the other. When we tense up and say to ourselves, I've got to get concentrated, I must, it doesn't work. One winds up with a headache usually. And if one sits here and says, well, it's all happening, let it just happen, that doesn't work either. There's got to be a middle in there. It's not the tension of I must and I will and I can and I am really going to do this now and it's also not letting everything just happen. It's regulating the mind to be attentive to that which we have chosen as a meditation subject. And every time it falls off, noticing what happened and getting back on. Now this balancing act, being in the middle, is another step, another prerequisite. And then another one are the five spiritual faculties. Now they're called faculties because we all have them. They become the five spiritual powers when we have cultivated and perfected them. But all ten, the faculties and the powers, which are exactly the same, only the first one is the training and the second is the perfection, are ten of the 37 factors of enlightenment. So you can see that they're very important. Even just the faculties, that which we have and can train. Now these five faculties are compared to a team of horses, which is very helpful. The Buddha often gave such similes and pictures which help us to remember. Their memory bridges, because we have notoriously bad memories. So if you think of a team of horses where there are two pairs and a lead horse, and if you have a visual mind, which many people have even without know it, know, knowing it, they can see a team of horses in front of their inner eye now. Now, the lead horse, obviously, can go as fast as it wishes because the others have to follow. But the pairs have to balance. If one of them goes faster than its partner, the carriage will topple the meditation will topple. So we'll have to look at these five and recognize them as inner abilities which we probably haven't really appreciated enough to make them an important part of practice. See, as I told you last night, practice does not mean just sitting on a pillow with crossed legs 
and trying to remember that one should be attentive to the breath. There's far more to practice than that. And it is like a huge jigsaw puzzle which all falls into place once you can see that each part of it has an equivalent to the next part where it fits in. Then you see a beautiful picture altogether. So the lead horse, which can go as fast as it wishes, is mindfulness. Mindfulness is one of the things that the Buddha talks about at great length. In fact, there are some traditions, particularly one, that uses only that as its main focus of attention and practice. And the discourse of the Buddha, which concerns that, of which there are two main ones actually, as its total teaching, just that on mindfulness. Obviously, the Buddha wouldn't have taught so many other discourses if the others shouldn't be taken into consideration. But you can see that there is great importance attached to it. It should not be one's only reference point because nobody makes that perfect until one is enlightened. So one is always sort of lagging behind. But it is a practice point, but it's not the only reference point. The Buddha said about mindfulness that it is the one way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of pain, grief, and lamentation, for the final eradication of all uh, suffering, for entering the noble path, for realizing Nibbana. Ekayana, one way. Without mindfulness, nothing works. Now it's the one way for the purification of beings. I have briefly mentioned that last night when I said that if one is mindful of one's physical action and movement, obviously one can't have any negative thinking. One is either this or that. We are fortunate that our mind can only do one thing at a time. But it can do things so quickly in succession that we get the idea that we've got ten things on our mind. The Buddha said that we can have 3,000 mind moments in the blink of an eyelid. Luckily, we don't usually have that, but we do have a fair number. And what actually happens is a back and forth. So when we are actually mindful, actually attentive, nothing else happens. We are just attentive. And that's why it's purifying. If I told you one second of concentration is one second of purification. Now mindfulness as such is something that we need to practice outside of the meditation hall just as much as inside of the meditation hall. In Pali, mindfulness is called sati, S-A-T-I, and attention on the breath is called anapanasati, mindfulness of in-breath, out-breath. So that's what we're doing when we're actually attentive to the breath. But we can't just leave that sati, that mindfulness, here on the pillow, walk out and let the mind play its usual games. We have to carry it forward 
we have to keep on trying to be mindful. Now, I already told you about the first step of mindfulness, the first base. There are four foundations or bases or objects of mindfulness, which the Buddha gave in that famous discourse of the Satipatthana Sutta, which I've just mentioned, which is sometimes in some traditions, particularly in one tradition, used as the only focus of reference. Now, the first foundation, the first base, is the body. And I've already talked about that last night. I'd just like to remind you of it, because we forget, it's easy enough to do, and we're not used to it. And yet, without that, the mind becomes so distracted outside of the meditation hall that it has a hard time being concentrated in the meditation hall. Watch the steps. Watch the movement. (coughs) Be aware. And when you're really aware of the movements of the body, you will notice very quickly that that is extremely peaceful. The world is going on out there very happily without us. Nobody is very upset about the fact that we are sitting here trying to be mindful. So we could leave them alone too. Couldn't we? We don't have to think about them. They're not doing anything that has any connection with us. So let's just sever the connection for the time being and be mindful of ourselves. Now, mindfulness also could be translated or used in the English word as objectivity. Attentiveness, objectivity. When we, usually when we pay attention to ourselves, we are subjective. That's me. Sometimes it's poor little me. Sometimes it's great big me. Sometimes it's me in connection with my loved ones. And sometimes it's me... Uh, losing everything it's always subjective I'm thinking about myself and all the things connected to me that's not mindfulness that's the usual worldly way of thinking it's very interesting and there's a quite an interesting book written about it by a very famous monk in Thailand uh, Buddha Dasa about Dhamma language and ordinary language we have to use the same words. We haven't got anything else, but we mean something different. So when we say mindfulness means attention to myself, it doesn't mean this business about this subject that is having all these problems, all these wonderful qualities. That doesn't mean that at all. It means a totally objective stance, standing one step back from oneself and looking and not judging just looking. Mindfulness has sometimes been translated as knowing only. There's no judgment in it. There's not even a quality judgment. It's just knowing, knowing what's going on. So when we take a step, we know we've taken a step. That's all. The foot has moved. That's all. It's not I am going somewhere. It's not, I've got to hurry because I'm late. Or, I don't really want to be here, but I'm, I'm here. Nothing like that. It's just having taken a step. 
Can you realize even from those few words that that would be extremely peaceful? Just having taken a step. And then another one, and another one, and another one. There are millions of steps that we take in our lives. I refer to the food that we're going to have at lunchtime right now because that's an excellent opportunity for practicing mindfulness of the body. There's so many actions going on. One has to first get the food on one's plate. And instead of trying to figure out what recipe was being used, is it Mexican food or is it, uh, is it very how hot or is it, no, is it all right or do I really like this and should I take more or should I take less? Just taking, using the hand to grasp the spoon, putting it in the dish and being totally aware of the action. Now, obviously, there will be a natural selection happening. Actually eating while eating. It's a very famous Zen story, which probably some of you know, and in the Zen tradition they have definitely the best stories. There's a story about a Zen master who lives together with a number of his disciples. And after a few years, one of his disciples finally gets up enough courage to say to this master, Sir, you said you were enlightened, but what makes you different from us? So the Zen master says, When I eat, I eat, and when I sleep, I sleep. So the student said, Yeah, but sir, I do exactly the same. So the Zen master said, When unenlightened people eat, they think a thousand thoughts. When unenlightened people sleep, they dream a thousand dreams. But when I eat, I eat. And when I sleep, I sleep. Now I'm suggesting to you to check that out when you go to lunch and see whether he was right or not. It's a natural thing for us to do, but we do have the faculty of mindfulness. We can be attentive. And when you do that, when you're actually attentive to the eating process, which is putting the food in the mouth, chewing it, tasting it, swallowing it, putting the spoon in the dish, lifting it, putting it in the mouth, chewing it, tasting it, swallowing it, the mind becomes quite at ease. It doesn't have all this tension in it. Mind that is thinking has tension because thinking is Movement, and movement is friction. There has to be friction. All movement has friction, so all thinking has friction. Stopping to think, being attentive, gives the mind a feeling of settling down. Don't believe it. Try it. The Buddha did not want anyone to believe what he said, but he wanted people to at least try it out and see whether there was any benefit in it. That's the first foundation of mindfulness. There are three more. And as we go along, we'll have time to discuss the others. I'll talk about the second one right now, because it's the one which has great application to our practice. And it is the innermost essence of our lives. It's a mindfulness of feeling. 
Now, feeling has actually two meanings, physical sensation and emotions. Now, physical sensations is not so difficult to become mindful of those. If we bump against a stone, we know it hurts. And if we react to it, well, we know we're reacting to it. But with our emotions, we're having far more trouble than that because they arise in a constant procession of reaction to the outer happening. And because they arise as a reaction, we are subjective about them. It's me. I'm angry, I'm worried, I'm sad, I'm unhappy, I'm distracted, I'm... All those things which take place in our lives, and we're so used to them probably by now, that we think one has to live like that. I can assure you one doesn't. One doesn't have to live reactively. One can live actively, but not reactively. And yet, the whole world lives reactively. And because of this reaction that everybody has to the emotions which arise, there's a constant energy output to try to get that which is pleasant, to try to get away from that which is unpleasant. And that energy output is so enormous that there's nothing left for anything else. The whole world lives like that. We don't have to. Meditators don't have to live like that. We can use our energy, our mental energy, for entirely different matters, for something which is so transcendent that it no longer needs reaction. So what we do to use the second base of mindfulness, to become aware of the emotion, to try and remain totally objective. So there is an emotion. So we see it arising. But we don't have to act it out. Maybe we see an emotion of boredom arising. (coughs) So we can watch it and let it disappear again. Maybe we can see an emotion of anger arising, of worry, of fear. We can see anything that arises, but we don't have to become that. The minute we become it, we are subjective. It's mine. But how can it be mine if it comes and goes and always comes when I don't want it? Why don't just the pleasant emotions arise? Why do I not, why am I not able to have only the pleasant ones? Why only, why do I have to live with both? pleasant and unpleasant, and why do I grab them and hold them next to me and consider them me? What for? No need at all. It's just a wrong way of thinking. That's all. It's that thinking track that the whole world uses, which goes around in circles where there's absolutely no exit, because the world is round. And those emotions come over and over again. No exit. What for? So our mindfulness, which we practice here in the meditation, must help us to have mindfulness outside of meditation. The practice of the mindfulness outside of meditation must help us to have enough mindfulness in meditation to become concentrated. Mindfulness and concentration are not the same thing. Mindfulness is the necessary ingredient for concentration. They are different steps on the Noble Eightfold Path. 
Number seven is right mindfulness. Number eight is right concentration. If they were the same, they could be on the same step, but they're not. So with that attention to our emotional state and not identifying with it, we're taking a first step of being objective, taking a step back, looking at ourselves in a non-judgmental manner, and also the first step into realizing that I'm not what I thought I was. And those steps are all necessary in order to have this pathway as an inner priority. When we watch the emotions, obviously we can't watch the physical actions. We have to make a choice. And that choice is very easily made because when the emotion arises, it overrides the attention to the physical action or the physical movement. So the choice is not really something that we have to make deliberately. It comes by itself. So we have those two to deal with anyway, and I will talk about the other two at another time. This is enough to do with at the moment. I have told you already, and this is also part of mindfulness, that the labeling process in the meditation will help to be able to label in daily living. Now, daily living is anything that you do outside of the meditation hall at this particular moment in time. So when you label your thinking processes, you're actually using mindfulness on, mindfulness on a different focus, which is the mindfulness of the content of thinking. Now, this mindfulness of the content of thinking, and I've mentioned it briefly last night, are called the four supreme efforts. And there are four of the 37 factors of enlightenment. So I've already told you 14 of the 37 factors of enlightenment. All you have to do is perfect them. <laughs> but that is, of course, said with tongue-in-cheek. What is meant is practice them. The four supreme efforts, I will now mention them to you in their original form so that you know why they're called four not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen, to make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, to make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. Now this goes back again to restraint and regulate, restraining and regulating the mind, not taking it for granted not allowing it to play its games, not allowing it to do whatever it pleases, because the mind is a magician. It can do anything. It can even go so far as thinking, I want to kill that person, and then actually doing it. We all know that. And it can do anything. It can do dreadful things. It can do wonderful things. So we need to restrain and regulate it, restrain it from the unwholesome, and regulate it for the wholesome. These four are the four supreme efforts. They are avoiding, is the first step, 
avoiding the unwholesome thinking, overcoming it when it has already arisen. Then, bringing about the wholesome and then maintaining it. So we have the ability to do that, and the more we learn to label in the meditation, the easier it becomes to do that. Well, this is actually the fourth base of mindfulness that which concerns the content of mind. I will talk about that fourth base at another time in more detail, but I wanted to mention it now because I have already mentioned it before, and that you know that you are <coughs> practicing that fourth base of mindfulness when you label your thinking. How else would you know whether it's wholesome or unwholesome? And the labeling makes you objective. You no longer believe what you're thinking. And this is one of the great advantages <coughs> for a meditator. An almost immediate advantage if one pays attention. As we see all these fanciful ideas arising in the mind instead of being concentrated on the breath, obviously it must come to our uh, mind that this can't all be true, what's arising there. And as we see those fanciful ideas coming and going, and as they go from here to there discursive, and as they have a sort of a um, lineal pattern, one following the other, we must become aware of the fact that thinking is just thinking, and that there's absolutely no real value in it. So when we know that for sure, then... We don't have to believe everything we think in daily life. We just know it's a thought, and we label it, and we recognize it. Aha, this one, unwholesome. Not going to bring any happiness to anyone. So, I substitute it. Eventually, we learn to drop it. We don't have to substitute, but in the beginning, we have to substitute. We've, in the, uh, when we've practiced more, we can just drop it. As we see that in ourselves, in the meditation, we also recognize how much unnecessary thinking we do. Mind you, there is some necessary thinking in daily life, obviously. We have to think where we're going, we have to think what we're doing, we have to think how to do it, we have to concentrate on the things which are necessary to keep alive. But the rest is totally unnecessary, particularly when it becomes unwholesome, particularly when it becomes negative. And that is the importance of practicing those four supreme efforts. Now, if you learn nothing else in this seven-day course except to practice those four supreme efforts in your daily life, you have made an enormously large step into spiritual practice. Nothing can be more important. And once you have done it, just once, just try it once, Maybe you don't like the food and you're going, Ugh. and then you think, oh, that's not very positive. Okay, well, let's see whether I can just have it without reacting to it. And you can. You'll feel extremely relieved that you have been able to change your mind the way you wanted to, that you haven't allowed the mind to just be the way it wanted to be. We are always taking the easiest way. And the easiest way is by no means the most wholesome way. So 
when we have been able to regulate restrain and change our mind on purpose we will see that that means having power of mind strength of mind that kind of power is the only power which is worthwhile having everything else is just fantasy that's power over oneself and that kind of power makes life a proposition which is at least something that is not beset by many difficulties so remember the four supreme efforts remember it also as the fourth foundation of mindfulness and remember that mindfulness is the lead horse of the spiritual faculties i will talk to you about the other four tonight because they are very important also but it is essential that we have a beginning with mindfulness that we have that as something that we know is part and parcel of every spiritual practice and has to become objective 